does someone lose $45 million overnight? And what mentality do you need to get back into the game, earn it back, and then make some more? Meet our newest guest, A Brewer, 40 years old from Square. Phenomenal story. He basically came on and shared with us what not to do. He's trying to share the lessons he's learned along the way. Really crazy story. He talks about his struggles with ADHD. Um, and you'll notice that he goes off on tangents in this episode. He has a phenomenal memory. Um, the 0809 real estate crisis really put him into a bind. But he's, he's reinvented himself, and it's really impressive. Um, a lot of respect for someone that is so open about the mistakes they've made. And I think they're going to help. People listening to this episode will learn a lot about what not to do, but also what to do. I think the fact that he's being so open and transparent is really cool to see. So without further ado, I give you a brewer. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Today we have an interesting episode on Kosher Money. We're sitting here with Abe Breuer, lives in Square, 40 years old, Super excited to do this. This episode can go in so many different ways, possibly one of many. Um, people want to know, who's Abe Breuer? So thank you very much for having me. That's absolutely correct. But before before I go anywhere, you said 40 years old, so I need to do edit this part because before when I said I'm 40, you said, wow, you look 33. Now we can move on. <laughs> so the question actually was, who is Abe Breuer? So like you said, I live in Square. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Square, so my parents lived in Square. Um, my in-laws live in Square. My wife is from Square. Uh, we have seven beautiful kids. They go to you know Square High School and so on. Our oldest is married and she's a teacher in Square, but she actually lives in Muncie. Um, so that's that's where we grew up. You know that type of thing. Um, now I did do Cheder and Yeshiva in Square, except one year I actually went to uh, I was in Shalim, I was in Chibin in Yeshiva over there, which was a lot of fun. So much so fun that after a year, the Meshgiach said to my father, take him home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always make fun of my father. He probably, tills, tills, is, probably still pays for the, you know, the expenditures that I gave out over there. Um, uh, it was a lot of fun. But I was young at the time. I was 15, 16. I was the youngest of my class. I was young. First uh, year of Yeshiva Gedoyle, for say. Um, came back. Was in Square for another... It was in Yeshiva over there for another year. Um, Technically, then got engaged, married, then obviously I kept enrolling down, I mean, up that way. I wasn't the best student in class because I had ADHD and ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, I had multiple businesses and things going from when I was six years old, eight years old, ten years old. You know, What that businesses type of thing. did you have when you were six, seven, eight? So I'll never forget. Um, so one of these things I'll never forget, she's an old lady. She lives in Square. Um, um, I, I can't really say the name because, you know, obviously, you know, and that's all, it's HIPAA and so on. But I do visit her from time to time. Mm-hmm. I mean, really old. And she used to run at the time, she used to run the library in Square. Now, I have no idea how the library in Square would compare to a library that you guys grew up with. Um, or obviously, which I know now how the world of library looks like, but certainly no DVDs or anything to that nature. But again, a library. And I convinced her that I'll be the bookbinder for the library. At the time when I came in, none of the books were booked were, were, were had, had binding in them. And um, I remember I was in, so it would be Kitavov, sixth grade. So essentially it would be maybe, I don't know, nine years old, something of that nature. And I got paid a dollar a book. And I do remember saving over $1,000 after getting after that year. So I had to do a lot of books together. So that's one of them, or cleaning hats and fixing bikes and, and, and so on. And then as I got older, I did more uh, 
older things. So computers, computers came out at the time. And How old were you at that time? I was maybe 13, 14 years old. Gotcha. So I sold that business though. At what age did you sell that business? I sold that business when I came back from Israel. I was 16 years old. I sold it for $25,000. $25,000. Was that a profit or there was some? <laughs> Very interesting. So I, I had no love for money. I always loved what money could buy, you know, the status. In other words, is in, in real essence, being today 40 and having kids of my own, it's, it's meaning filling a void, which I guess I, I lost by something. I don't know okay. why. Maybe by okay. not being the best kid or, or I don't know. We should so, combine him with Dr. Peratinsky, our pre, so you we, know, one of our previous guests, psychology. We'll bring them all together for a panel discussion. Well, you do have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine chairs. Nine chairs so we could right. get this done, 10 <laughs> right, chairs. Right. So at the end of the day, um, I sold it for $25,000. The person that bought it for $25,000, I owed him roughly $35,000. Mm. <laughs> and there was some more. But I had a good time. I was living. I was doing my thing, you know? So then, okay. You had a computer company, sold it at the age of about 16 for $25,000. What age did you get married? I was 19. 19. And you, I think you mentioned you were working in car sales at the time? Yeah, so um, so I'm just going to go back to the computers for a second because yeah. it's just a memory that popped in. Go ahead. So I remember I was in yeshiva and on the public phone. Again, cell phones was a rare you know, thing at the time. My father had one, but mom is And I remember I was at the public phone. I can't remember whom I spoke to, but I believe it was somebody in the state. And I was trying to figure out what company name to form for my company. And essentially, the company was Hudson Computers USA. And I was trying to get Hudson Computers. And Hudson Computers belonged to somebody else. So I had to make Hudson Computers USA. Weirdly enough, a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks back, somebody had to pay me for something. And he brought me a check from Hudson Computers USA. That company is still around. Wow. <laughs> it's probably wow. you know, a little caca company. But I'm saying right. it's, it's still around. <laughs> That's you know, awesome. That type of thing. That's your baby. So, eh, well... So, so that's, that's the other thing also. I think that part of success is, and I know I'm, I may be jumping in, 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 okay. in a whole different uh, you know, uh, conversation, but to me, I, I, there's no such thing as my baby, so I don't get disappointed very well. So in other words, is, in other, not very well, not very often. So in other words is, if what's considered quote-unquote your baby doesn't work out, mm -hmm. then essentially it, it leads to people walking into depression and a different, you know, different aisle or avenue where you don't want to be mm -hmm. versus... I need to be the success. So if Hashem gives it to me in computers, I'll do it in computers. If tomorrow it's in water, I'll do it in water or on microphones or in TVs, whatever the case is. It's just me needing to be the best. So my baby, I couldn't care less, you know, that type of a thing. Interesting um, outlook. Yeah, because yeah. people get very emotionally invested in their business. They put the amount of sweat and, and years and tears into it. And if that doesn't work out, they're, they're, they're a total mess. But if they would just pivot into something else and... Think bigger picture. That's one of the biggest picture. That's one of the biggest problems when it comes for people that have businesses. And and I, you know, typically when I speak to someone, I, I take out a pen and I usually write down stuff so I could continue to remember different things. Remember I'm ADHD, you know that type right. of thing. So my pen and paper is my best thing. So hope, I hope we could get back to these conversations. But one of the biggest problems in businesses is that people's outlook in terms of what they want in business gets shadowed by the sweat and the and the effort that they've put in, which is totally unrealistic to what the actual value of the company is or mm -hmm. the actual, um, and you see it a lot by kids, but you know, kids that go off the derech, that parents' emotions, I'm going to tell you a perfect story and you'll get this. Mm -hmm. So my mother, she passed away three years ago, smart, smart, very smart uh, person. She was gewaldig. So 
my mother, she, for most of a year, she did um, kids therapy with kids, you know, that type of a thing. Um, so she did, she had some training and some courses and some stuff that she passed. I don't even know what, but whatever. And she worked for the school system of the town of Ramapo. That's where we live. You know, Square Muncie, it's all under the town of Ramapo. And I'll never forget it. So there was a kid in my class. We were maybe 13, 14 years old. It was my Chavrusa. And um, he wasn't doing good. I mean, physically, mentally. I mean, it was all over the place. And it's just, he wasn't good. So he used to talk to me a lot. I, you know, I'm, I, I give people that comfortability. So he was just spitting it out, you know, that type of thing. And I went back to my, my mother and I asked her, I can't understand something. This boy's father is this big guy in yeshiva. And he's this big Balmachanach. And he's actually a very good Balmachanach. He does great. But why is his son so, you know, why can't he do the same thing with his son? So my mother said, and she said, very simple. It took 30 seconds. She said, very simple. She said, look, if somebody has a garden, he loves, loves, loves the garden, right? So he puts water, but now he puts it with emotion. So he puts too much water. So mm. what happens to his garden? He just overflushes it and just turns out to be nothing. So that's the same thing. And that's the same thing in business with people. As soon as you get emotionally involved and as soon as it becomes an emotional type of thing, now starts the fights, the disagreements, you know, and everything and so on. And, and I've told you this on the phone, I believe each and every one of my companies, almost I have partners. Mm. And, and none of the partners think alike because if you have a partner that you think alike with your partner, he's your friend, he's not your partner. That's, that, that's a marriage, that's not a partnership. Um, you need these two different things to be able to juggle in and so on. Um, so, so that's that. Um, that's I, very interesting. I mean, partnerships, and we'll get into that, is uh, we did a whole episode. You can talk for hours on, on partnerships and how to construct it or whatnot. But I want to, I, and, and we, we are going to get there, I want to go back to the car sales. You get married? No, that's before I got married. Before you get married. So so I come back from Etzisrael, I sold the computer company, okay. and then my brother, so I'm the, I'm the seventh out of 12. Seven out of 12. <laughs> so my brothers and sisters, very supporting, you know, we're having a lot of fun, and again, I'm, I'm the fun kid, you know, I just, you know, all over the place, you know, that type of thing. And um, one of my brothers, I don't know if he did it because he enjoyed my company or did it for a favor to my parents, but we used to hang out a lot, sort of like every night, you know, two, three hours and just fun stuff. We used to do projects and whatever work he was involved in and so on. And like my father, that brother is very much, you know, Consumer Report says that this car is the right car to buy, you know. I mean, I don't know you, but me, I buy the car that looks good, you know, right, that type right. of thing. So, so we go, um, so he wants to buy at the time, he wants to buy a Chevy... Malibu, that's what it was, because he read in Consumer Reports that the Honda Accord, Chevy Malibu, and something else, I don't care what I so, so he wants. So he knows I'm the big talker, you know, the, sales, the salesman type of guy. So he takes me to a dealership. It's called Curland Cadillac, Curland Chevy Cadillac Pontiac or something like that, GMC or whatever. And we go there to negotiate this car. And I'm just doing my thing, and I'm going, and so on. Now, now, mind you, now, basically, me, hat, you know, jacket, gartle, the whole nine yards. I'm a square boy. I'm in that dealership. I'm getting this stuff done. And then one of the owners was two brothers, David and Steve Curland. And one of the owners, David, comes up to me and says, hey, what's your name? So I said, you know, hey, Brewer, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, so he says, um, I want to have you as a salesman. You know, we don't have much of the, you know, of the Yiddish market. He's a, he's a fry either. So we don't have Yiddish market. And I want to have you as a salesman. Um, so I'm just, I was like, I'm supposedly in yeshiva. I got to get engaged, you know, stigma is a big thing, you know, what do I do? I go into a dealership and I start working and so on and forget about this. I'm like 16 and a half, maybe 17 years old. So, so I'm thinking, and I said, you know what? And I, and I start, and I start pulling from him, like, how, how, how badly do you want me to wear, you know, that type of thing and so on. So then I go away and I talk to my brother and then maybe a couple of days later I come back and I said, look, 
if we could work this out, that I do not have to sit in the showroom. In other words, is you could give me an office upstairs, okay? Mm-hmm. You are paying to put in ads in Yiddish to my liking, to what I think is nice. So at the time it was the Yid or the Zeitung, you know, or maybe Hamadiyya, I don't remember. Um, these ads with my cell phone number on it, I had a cell phone at the time already, with my cell phone number on it and an extension and so on, I'm willing to do this, okay? So I'm like 16 and a half, 17 years old. So they did it. Later, they even gave me a key to the dealership, and I figured out very soon that there's no alarm system at that dealership and no one. That dealership used to close at 8.30 p.m., so I used to go there only at lunch or maybe Sundays when they didn't work, and um, you know, just if I had appointments, because again, my concept of, 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 of customers was just, you know, Yoyli and Yankee and mm-hmm. Ellie, you know, that type of thing. It wasn't I had to sell to Jim Smith, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, he gave me a key to the dealership, and for a very long time, I'll never forget this, 8.30, he closed by 8.45, a taxi of Bukharam showed up, we took one <laughs> of the loaner cars, Popped the dealer plate on it, rolled around half a night, brought it back. So we had a good time. So um, so I did, did that for a little cars? while. I sold a decent amount of cars. They Not for lo- him to keep you. Um, I didn't. I didn't want it at the point because what happened is, why do so? When you buy your car, you buy it by whatever by by by. Uh, uh, by a leasing company, right. why do you do that? Because for for the person to stick to just Honda, just Toyota, that's limiting his hands. Right. So we realized that. So after being there with another guy that I came back from at Sassarol, he got married the year before me, he's way older than me, we opened up a leasing company called Simple Leasing. Okay. And we actually closed it the Friday from my Shabbos Ofruf. It wasn't doing like crazy well, we just made a living. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a business, it was a job for say, a job for yourself, you know, right. that type of thing. And um, so we did, so we did that, we did the dealership, we had a, uh, so I had a lot of fun. So, but I just want to end you the story very funny. So we kept I kept a relationship with the Curlins for a long time. David mm-hmm. and Steve. Steve actually passed away about a year ago, mm-hmm. and David and they ended up selling the dealership. David ended up working for Lex Rakitina Lexus. And two years after my chasana, I was doing sales and buying real estate at the time. Mm-hmm. I bought my first Lexus, or better said, the company that I worked for bought my Lexus because mm-hmm. I was doing good, and we bought it from him. And now the multiple attorneys that I have, so I have a real estate attorney and I, you know, for residential, for commercial and a business, my business attorney is actually David's son, oh, Adam wow. Curlin, great guy, full we always circle. laugh, and full circle, full circle, yeah, That's we just awesome. made bar mitzvah, he came to the bar mitzvah and so on and so forth, so I did that. So you yeah. mentioned real estate, you got into real estate when, 2000, 2001? So I got married in 2000, and then what I knew very much is that I wanted to invest in my in my marriage in terms of Shana Roshona, mm-hmm. so... I basically, we did that, we, we had a great time, and then 10 months later, our daughter was born. Um, and then I started doing sales for a janitorial company. Mm. Great company, great guy, still connected with him. I mean, uh, he actually criticized me a couple of days back and on LinkedIn, and I went back. I mean, good stuff, good mm-hmm. stuff. Great guy, uh, Satmar guy. And um, he taught me a lot in how to open up your mind, you know. So in other words, if you're doing paperwork for, let's say, a $3 million transaction, see if you could do that for a $30 million transaction. It's more or less the same paperwork. Mm-hmm. You just get it done, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing. So we, um, so I worked for him. And then at the same time, I was playing a lot on LoopNet. Over the years, I loved the concept of real estate. And the reason why I loved the concept of real estate because I used to tell myself that by nature, the jumpy nature that I have, I'm just not a good businessman. Because business people have to be nitty-gritty, dollars, pennies, you know, getting stuff done and, and filing and paperwork and coming in nine to five. That's not me. Real estate, you know, wheeling, dealing, negotiating, you know, that's me. So so I always wanted to have real estate. And even when I was a bucker and the little time that I spent online, I looked at LoopNet and- Which is a real estate. It's a real website. estate uh, uh, search engine for say. Okay. It's still around. Um, but then it was like, 
the only thing. It came mm-hmm. out, I think, in the late 90s, so maybe at 97, 98, 99. And I was looking at that. And I used to look at, at, at buildings. And I always, at that point, had the, the concept that it doesn't have to be in my backyard. It could be someplace uh, in Kentucky. It could be someplace in Connecticut. It could be in Massachusetts. It could be mm-hmm. in Maine, if it makes sense, and so on. And I realized real fast that buying in the city is just not going to be possible for me because I don't have any money and I don't come from any money. So um, in order for me to buy something bigger, which could be more sustainable for less money, negotiate a down payment type of a thing, will have to be someplace far away. So I kept on looking at real estate and looking and looking and looking. And I told myself that I would be best in in uh, residential real estate. And I think it's a big mistake that most of the guys in our community do. And it's the simple reason is because it's a lack of education to understand commercial real estate. So I'm going to I'm going to fast forward 20 years later, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, I, we could get this in steps, but I lost everything in real estate, but we're going to get in steps. But right now. I do have residential real estate just basically around a few blocks that I live in. I have a couple of things in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and so on. But my real estate investment is warehousing. And if, I wish I would, have be able to, I would have known this in 2000 or 2001. I would have bought warehousing at that time. But I didn't, and I didn't know. And I'm going to tell you one of the reasons, and I think it's very important for your listeners to understand this. And the reason why commercial real estate, and you have to maybe have a little more guts and, 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 and you have to stomach a lot more... Um, you know, downfalls or lengths of times and so on. But think about one thing for a second. A person that lives in your residential house, in your apartment, when are they in the apartment to complain about their apartment? After work, which is five, after 5, 6, 7, 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. and weekends. A commercial tenant, when is he in the place to be able to complain? Nine During to five hour, yeah. and never in the weekends. Mm. That's just one of the reasons to have Harchava Sadas is to build. But it's, it's a long and lengthy conversation and it could probably be debated, you know, with many people and so on. But I was looking at residential at the time. and Without any money, right? You didn't have... I had no money. Okay. I had no money, but I had ambition. Right. I had, and, and I'm going to tell you something very, very funny. With all the money that I did not have, mm-hmm. with all the debt that I had over the years, with all the debt that I had in 2007, 2008, millions and millions of dollars, and, and we're going to get to that point in life... I was always a rich man because it has nothing to do with how much money you have in the bank. It's all a mindset that's only ahead to the point where my father is a pretty realistic guy, nothing like me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and and mind you, you see me at 40, not at 20. Um, so my father used to say, and you say it in public, used to say, Hashem, you gave me a son, a very rich son. Now please give him a few dollars or so. You know, <laughs> that type of a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true. So, so did, you had debt in, in, in 2001 in before you even had any real estate. How much debt? I didn't, did, I didn't have much, but, but, but whatever cards I had, credit cards was maxed. Right, I mean, okay. I'm the type of guy that, that could never take his credit cards from 20000 to 250000 because he's just always maxing it right. out. And mm-hmm. maybe some months needing to pay minimum payments is because I'm, I'm large in their life. And it's just, right. it's just the nicer vacation because why go to the normal vacation? Who would do that? You know, that type of a thing and so on, which obviously is a big mistake. And sure. I do encourage anyone to do that. I, I, I Today, my message to people would be very simply is look at the big picture, how you want to get there and fight together, including containing your, you know, your expenditure with the reward of having what you want to have triple, triple times more than than what you have right now. But you do have to have big goals. I like what you said on the phone. You said the reason you, you are doing these podcast visits and these speeches is so that people can learn from mistakes you've made. Maybe that uh, maxing out the credit cards is one of them. Um, But I think it's important. A lot of people can get to where they need to a whole lot quicker if they say, hey, Abe made that mistake. I'm not going to make the same mistake. So so what was the first um, 
real estate purchase that you made? So I'm selling this gen- for this janitorial guy. I'm selling to nursing homes and hospitals. The number that you have to sell per month was $100,000 a month. And then at the same time as I'm looking at real estate deals, I found a deal, a 24-unit apartment building. It's in the real estate business. It's called a... Uh, a um, multi-use, I believe, not multi-use, but the bottom had commercial and the top had residential. Mm-hmm. Um, skip my mind, but basically, so I had, uh, if I remember correctly, I had five stores on the bottom, 19 um, residential units. I actually know the, the guy, Hamish, the guy who owns it now, but I, I, I know who it is. But um, so this was basically in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, one of the bigger mistakes I did is that, you know, real estate is say location, 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 but I also knew I'm not going to fight with anybody and I'm not going to go into a real estate deal where I'm going to fight with 17 other Hamish guys who wants it and who's bidding it up and so I'm not looking at Flatbush I'm not looking at Brooklyn I'm not looking at Manhattan I'm gonna look someplace where I don't have that competition where I could shine you know mm-hmm. where I could come in and I could I could use my smarts and my energy and get this done and so on so and I you com- were planning to go into this alone or you were thinking of taking on so, additional investors so I, I obviously knew that I had to take on investors I had no choice because right. I knew I don't have the money but you're thinking very sane I don't think that way <laughs> or at least I didn't think that way. Right. I want that building and I'm going to get it done and then we're going to figure out how it gets done. To the, to answer your question on a different angle, in 2000 and 2006, 2007, I had 65 individual partners in real estate. Could you imagine what it means to 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 manage? I mean, right. it's just it's just a full time job saying hello to everybody, you know that type of thing. So totally doing it the wrong way. Right, right. And and but again, lack of education. Um, you know, uh, never had the the financial education on, on how to control finances. Um, a little bit in a sense, you know, if I did it today, I could do it tomorrow, which is totally wrong. Obviously, that's why Chazal say it not to do it. Um, so that was one of the bigger things, and just not thinking it. Not thinking, not thinking it through too deeply, and 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 that also helped me a lot on my downfalls. Not thinking it through too deeply, you know. So it works on both ways. So basically, this building in Hartford, Connecticut, twenty-four units. I'm just going to tell you real quick how I bought it. <clears throat> how much was it? Four hundred. So the guy was asking four hundred thousand dollars. He just finished rehabbing the property. Okay. Um, four hundred thousand dollars, and I show up there, and I have my nice Lexus RX three thirty Coach Edition. I'll never forget <laughs> that Coach Edition. So you, so in your age, you remember probably. You know what the RX three thirty is, the yeah, Lexus. Sure. So the little bold. So it used to be. It used to be two tone colors, maybe gold and silver. Or you, you remember? Yeah. yeah gold so and the silver. Coach Edition they had only in one color. So it was gold and a set Coach. And my wife took delivery from David Curlin. When we, my wife and I took delivery from David Curlin. And they got, so because it's a coach edition, she got a couple of coach bags. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 who cares, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I roll up there at my, uh, with my Lexus. I look 16 years old. I have this, um, how this broker. You, how old are you in real life? 21. 20. Probably, probably like 10 years old at that point. <laughs> you know. So young, like no beard, big payers. My old, my signature was always big payers, mm-hmm. you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. And um, I come up over there and believe it or not, there's like 18 people that showed up and I'm like, man, what did I do? I'm like, hello, it was supposed mm-hmm. to be me, you know? It's supposed to be a secret. <laughs> a secret. Heimish so, guys or? Yeah, there was some Heimish guys and there's some, you know, Right. So I I, wrote, I I tell my broker, I said, listen, um, you know, meet my Blackberry, you know. So I tell my broker, I said, listen, roll up to this guy. His name is Carlos. He's a great guy. The guy that sold us the property. I kept, I, I ended up buying from a bunch of properties afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I rolled there. I said, listen, after the meeting, after this uh, showing, I want to meet him in his office. And I finished reading a book then from the Reichmans. And the book said very simple. Don't negotiate the price. Negotiate the terms. So in other words, obviously the price has to be in the RAM of an area, but everybody that came in there and he was asking 400 was giving him an offer from 399 or less. I walked in and says, listen, you want 400? I'll give you 400 with pleasure, not a problem. You want to be able to close without a mortgage contingency? 
I'll close without a mortgage contingency. But then I gave him a whole schmooze of how tied up we are with money, this, that, and so on. I said, listen, it's going to be like this. So basically, at the time of contract, I'm going to give you $25,000. Mm-hmm. At the time of closing, 30 days later, as soon as the title comes back and it's clean, I'm going to give you another $25,000. So now the guy only has you know, 12% from you, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Six months in the game, and you're holding paper. Six months in the game, I'm going to give you another $50,000. A year into the game, I'm going to give another $100,000. So in 12 months from today or in 13 months from today, your exposure to the property is only going to be at 50%. That's brilliant. Why would you not want to do that? And he went ahead and he did it. Mm. And again, if you're asking my thinking, all I walked away from there is where do I get 25000 I wasn't thinking about the second twenty five. I wasn't thinking about the 50, I wasn't thinking about the 100. That means nothing. But I also knew very well that once I owned the building and I need to get an extension on that 50 or that 100, he has no choice but give it to, give it to me because what is his option? He's not going to foreclose on me because mm-hmm. it's going to take him a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, I, um, I came back to Square, met my brother-in-law, um, said, listen, I got this building, great deal, blah, 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 you know, the whole schmooze, and I needed $25,000. Remember, I got nothing. I got gas to get to Hartford, Connecticut. That's mm-hmm. it. And a, an Alexis RX, an Alexis 330, RX 330 That's it. And um, so we get. So he gives me the $25,000. We put the property on the contract. I'll never forget that I had a in-ground, 1,500-gallon in-ground oil tank that we had to do a pressure test on, mm-hmm. you know, to see if the, it's in-ground. So you have to do a pressure test. There's no leaks on it and so on. And we did that. And then title came back clean, obviously. And we closed on the building. And that was on a Tuesday afternoon. And I was king of the castle. Mm-hmm. I felt like the richest man in the world. You have no idea. <laughs> I was knocking the, like, on the it was me. Mm-hmm. I got keys, you know, that type of thing. But then we walked into a very dangerous place in the real estate business, mm. which basically now Connecticut was up and coming. And you have to understand also something else. People ask me today if they should buy in Boston or they should buy in you know, areas where it's either far away and they see deals that in their mindset, they're sitting over here. So for the mindset from over here, it looks like a very good deal because it's over there. So they really don't know that market. And what's very important to remember is that when the market goes up, the last properties they're going to get grabbed up are going to be in the areas which is the hardest to sell. Mm. But the first properties which is going to go haywire, which is going to go out of out the window, are those properties. The last properties to sell, the first properties to go. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Not, not in a good area. I'm saying it because of the area. Right. Nobody wanted it until they had just had nothing to buy anymore, so mm-hmm. they had to buy it. So at that point, um, so I'm buying Connecticut. Connecticut's up and coming. It's happening. So I had Waterbury. I had New Britain, Meriden, Torrington, um, Hartford, obviously. You know, all these amazing areas and so on. And uh, amazing areas, whatever. And at that point, we're rolling into a time. It's 2004, 2005, where the houses are going up so high to the point Connecticut does foreclosures as pre-foreclosures. Mm-hmm. So the office that was doing the pre-foreclosures for the state or for the court system, whatever, was basically tight with me. I used to know when a house was going to go up on the market at 12.00 a.m. Tuesday night. So I saw the house before. I knew my comps. I get it done. And we just kept on buying it and buying and buying and buying. But to the point where we stopped rehabbing them and putting in tenants. Because just by holding these properties for three, four, five, six months, by doing nothing, the market kept on going up so high. And these straw buyers that had no idea about real estate that these brokers used to bring in and used to there was no dock loans type of a thing mm-hmm. because that's what, you know, what went bust. So we could buy, let's say, a three-family for $100,000 in January, sell it April 1st, sell the same thing for $160,000. There was no motivation even to care about making the money and so on. So when the market crashed, we had 400 of these houses sitting around that was mm. not, it wasn't making a nickel and a dime. Mm. It was horrible. It was horrible. Lost everything. <laughs> How much money in debt? 
So at that time, I had um, so roughly between four and five million dollars for for just uh, you, me, brother-in-law, neighbor, brother, sister type of a thing, and then about forty plus million dollars non-recourse loans to the bank. So you're <laughs> how old at this point? I'm uh, twenty-five, twenty-six. Twenty-five years old, twenty-six years old, forty-five million dollars in debt. How do you sleep at night? <laughs> it's a good question and a good story. So. Were you extremely depressed or no? No. So, 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 so the answer is yeah. So the answer is I was depressed, but was I extremely depressed? No. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tell you a very funny story, and this is going to give you the, the the understanding of what happened, the way my head was thinking. So obviously I'm bouncing checks all over the place. My car is being impounded. My nice, beautiful house that I have is is is, is you know is in foreclosure. Um, I can't make any payments. My wife can't go to the grocery. I mean, every week going to the grocery is like a struggle. I mean, for mm-hmm. that two three hundred dollars. I mean, forget about tuition. Forget about electricity. And and I and I'm. It's just and I and I I'm amazing because most people when they can't pay the electricity bill by twelve hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars the oh it's OR but you are but you guys it's Con Edison and Con Edison will be at your door knocking so then if you need a brother and a sister to help you put together the twelve hundred dollars I had some sort of a way how to drag these people on until it was like six seven eight thousand dollars and when they shut my electricity there was nowhere to turn mm. electricity was off a couple of days. My two older daughters, they do remember still these days mm-hmm. when there was electricity was off. And people used to say, come to my house or take a hotel and so on. And I deliberately said, absolutely not, because these kids are going to grow up in a very wide-minded, wealthy, matzlich um, go home. And these times of not having electricity in-house is absolutely going to be the core of how they're going to stay sane people. Because it can be Purim every day and it can be Pesach every day. There is a Tisha B'Av also. And it happens in every person's life and it could happen on a minute notice, it could happen on an hour notice, and it can happen on a weekly notice. And they absolutely need it. And if you ask my daughters now, the ones that remember the story, mm-hmm. they, they ask them like how it was. And they all they remember that it was fun. We went to the store, we bought little candles and we had the doors open because it was so hot. Sometimes it was in the summer, it was like so freaking hot. You had, you know, so you had to keep the doors open. So anyway, so this is But this like, is not the norm, right? You understand that. What you're describing, most people, when they see an electric bill a uh, month or two behind, they start bugging out, right? They're not, they're not going to let it get to the point. You're sort of like living this almost above life slash above worry, but maybe it's one of those mistakes you feel that you might have made when you were younger in the sense that, hey, I wasn't. I didn't have the level of responsibility that I needed to have. Would you say so? So let me back you up for a second, and then I'm going to try to answer it. So at the time when this is happening, the real estate is going down, I own two businesses, okay? Now, like everybody that owns businesses, especially when you don't have enough education in business on how to really scale it and have a business plan, and a huge portion of a business plan is, is, is sorting out your finances, you know, you're obviously struggling. So the businesses were struggling, but I, I was, I'm a very optimistic person. So I always went to sleep, and, and we'll talk about going to sleep because I want to tell you a very, very sweet story, mm-hmm. but I always knew that there is a place and a room where I could be matzliach. Because it's not like everybody else. That, so let's say the guy that was, was a contractor and he was constructing 100 houses. And the market went you know, upside down and his houses were foreclosed and their lots were taken away. And, and, and now he has choivis and his wife. And he has nothing. He has one option. He could be a register in the grocery store for $12 an hour. That wasn't my case. When the market went dead, I had to do two things. A, I had to occupy myself 170% so I'm not going off my mind and I had to bring home money. My choice was that occupying myself every minute of the day, 20 hours of the day, 
is a lot more important than bringing home the money because my occupation at the time was building my own companies. And it turned out to be the biggest blessing in the world for two reasons. A, because I put on jeans pants and a black t-shirt and a cap and I physically went out there and I pumped toilets in my Porter John company. That's mm-hmm. what I did. And now, I, I, you know, if you don't want to shake my hand again, I get it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, <laughs> I got to tell you a story about shaking hand with one of the rabbis. in has got a story for everything. I love it. <laughs> Amazing story. No, it's, yeah. it's something to understand because people do work hard. People are plumbers, and right. it's nothing to sure. look look down on them, you know? So at the end of the day, me working hard accomplished two things. Well, accomplished three things. A, I, didn't, I wasn't home most of the day because I was physically in a truck. I fired one of my guys that I paid him $1,000 a week, and I physically was on a truck. I was working like a dog. You started the porta potty Company? In 2004. Bef- 2004. Uh, before the crash. Yeah, we could, okay. we, could, we could go back to that point yeah. and tell you how I started if you want to talk business a little bit. So, so basically, we, um, so, so I was working like a dog. I fired one of the guys, took his position, and started working. Because I was working in the business, two months later we we grew so fast that I took back that guy and I you know to put him on another truck, mm-hmm. that type of thing. So that so the first thing is I wasn't home. Second thing is I was occupying my brain. And the third and the most important thing is that the people that I owed money to the Balachovas, the reason why they invested money in me is because they invested in me. Like on Shark Tank, they say they don't invest in the business idea, mm-hmm. they invest in the person. So they invested in me. And what they got in return, maybe not money, but when I answered the phone to them and I said, listen, my friend, look what I'm doing. I'm not sitting home crying. I didn't take a job that I'm getting paid $600 a week where I'm deficiting $600 a week for the mm-hmm. rest of the money that I have to make. I am physically working hard. So your successful model that you invested in should be able to get out of this very strong. All you need to do is respect me and wait. Mm. So for them, it was a big respect what I was doing. I was actually literally working hard. Every other company was folding. Every other company, especially in the construction business. The Porter John business at the time was doing 90% construction type of a work. And, and, and contractors didn't pay us, nothing to that nature. But I want to tell you, so, so this gives you a little bit of an answer. I wasn't totally irrational. It's just the way I say it is very simple. I came from a place in 2008 where every $100 belonged to 10 people, to Orange Rockland, tax, mortgage, grocery, fish store, whatever, okay? Mm-hmm. To a place where every $100,000, I'm still under pressure, still stressed, got a lot of things going on, but now every $100,000 belongs to five investments that I committed myself. Mm-hmm. So I still have the same um, dagas, you know, for say, Harchav Sadas is still a big thing that needs to come in here, but on a whole different uh, concept, whole different idea. So that, so let me tell you a funny story. My wife, which is a realist, and um, thank God, <laughs> I guess that's why we have sane kids. Someone has, someone, <laughs> someone has, has to be in that relationship. Exactly. So it's a funny story, and, and I actually said it once in public with her, so it's very, very concept. So what happened was is that she really had a hard time surviving because at the end of the day, you can't go to the grocery with nothing. Mm-hmm. And you can only go to the grocery and give them X amount of checks, and then it keeps on bouncing. Um, you can only borrow so many credit cards until the guy says, listen, if you don't pay me by Tuesday, I'm disputing all the charges and actually disputes all the charges. So the grocery kicks you out. There's only so much of this you could do. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, I took away 90% or naturally, by the time we got married, 90% of a problem. So the car wasn't a problem. It was my issue. She never was involved in bills. O&R wasn't her issue until they cut the electricity. Mm-hmm. You know, that type of a thing. Tuition was a problem until you needed the car at the beginning of the semester to be able to get in, the beginning of this month to get in. You had to have the car to get in. That was her problem. So all these things and so on. And one of the biggest issues she had is that Tuesday night, she used to go to grocery Wednesday, Tuesday for Shabbos. Tuesday night, when she had to go to grocery, she couldn't sleep the entire night. Literally, it was, it was, it was stressing her. Naturally, that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. I slept like a baby. Mm. And that's what was bothering her. Like, how could you? Like, like, what's wrong with you? You know, that type of thing. 
Are we talking here heavily medicated sleeping like a baby or sleeping any? like I sleep today? Okay. Just delicious, okay. you know. So, so I, I always say what I do, I try to do 120. percent So, mm-hmm. same goes for sleeping. <laughs> so, what happens is we go to my mother, and again, my mother was the, per, the the person we used to talk to a lot, you know, that type of thing. And, and she says, "Look, I really have this problem with." Him. So, my mother says, "I have a friend professionally that I send people to, and people know him, and I could even I'll, I'll even say the name, Dr. Kranzler. He was considered I don't know if he's around still, but considered a great um, psychologist in Manhattan." She hands me $250 because you know I, doesn't ha- I don't have it. She hands me $250 and says, make an appointment, go to Dr. Kranzler, ask him that question. So we go into his office and we start schmoozing and we give him a little bit of the background, who we are, how many kids we have, blah, 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 and uh, what's going on and so on. And he says, okay, so why are you here? So my wife starts saying that we have this stress and this so on. And then she gets to this punchline. Like how, when I need to have a penny to spend, I can't have it. Or when the electricity is going to be shut off, he's just pretty cool about it. You know, getting, I mean, getting stuff done. I wasn't sitting at home and just shaking my legs. I I was working. I was was hustling. I was doing stuff, but obviously not performing enough. And he sleeps so good at night. How does that work? And so on. So he turns to me and says, Abe, how do you do that? So I said, I'll tell you, Dr. Kranzler, very simple. I'm obviously a successful person if I got to this point, because how many people do you know get get in with the bank's $45 million, you know, in the minus, that type of a thing. So... The market has turned, and the market basically went down on us, okay? It's very hard for me to wake up in the morning. That's related to depression. There's no question about it. But as soon as I get out, and sometimes it will be maybe 7 o'clock in the morning, sometimes it will even end up being 11 o'clock in the morning, depending how bad that morning is, how many checks I'm going to have to answer for, you know, either bouncing or not paying, or how many guys didn't come into work because of payroll wasn't made, or how many trucks couldn't leave a yard because the credit card for diesel didn't work. I'm not joking. I'm, I'm telling you. And, uh, and so on. And then I get into the office, and I, um, I used to sit in the office, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine o'clock at night, and I used to sit on my lovely friend LoopNet. And basically, so if I could get this, I'd, oh, this discounted so much. And if I get this, if I only get the partner, I can negotiate the discount and so on. And I could flip this, and I could make $2.2 million type of thing and so on. And that's an amazing idea. I got to figure out how to, how to get it done, and I go to sleep. I go to sleep like a millionaire. I sleep great. And then the next morning, I wake up to reality again. You know, it's hard to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. He pulls back his chair, and this is like 15 minutes into the session. He pulls back his chair and says, I can't understand you. You're that smart, but you couldn't figure out how to sell her the same story every single night? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the answer, you know? <laughs> so, so, okay. So you have the Porta Potty Company. The market's crashed. Was the Porta Potty Company doing well in 2007, 2008, or so, was it just getting off the ground? So I'm very transparent when it comes to the Porta Potty Company in terms, of, in terms of the office and so on. I'm pretty open in the dollars that we do because I believe as a company, I, I don't have to physically share it with your audience. And, and, mm-hmm. and, the, and I'll tell you why I'm t- saying it to you, because I do want to tell you where I was at the time in dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. But in the company, I'm very transparent with my people. Um, everybody knows what kind of sales we did. Everybody knows how much more we did. And then everybody, we celebrate together, you know, that type of thing and so on. Um, because I think that that gives the drive, although it may be my company, but essentially it's our company, you you know, it's everybody else's company because that's how we have a job. That's how we get bonuses and that's how we get paid. Mind you, for many, many years, and, and a lot of the employees that I have have been with us from the for like from 16 years ago. So the company is 18, 19 years old, but, but they've been with us 16 years and 14 years and 12 years and, and 10 years. We're a great company to work for. Mm-hmm. And How many employees do you have now? Right now we have over 100 employees mm-hmm. um, in, this com- in this company. I have different companies, but this company. So at that point, we opened the company in 2004 from scratch. Didn't buy anybody out. We decided on a... Matze Shabbos, we decided that we're, so when we say we, it was me and a partner. So my friends used to bug me always, like, come, I always have these good ideas, these good ideas, but not all of them are, are tangible, something that, you know. So 
So come on, so come on, So basically, I got into this business. The reason why I got into this business is because construction was booming at the time. And I wanted to be in construction, but again, like I did the same thing with the real estate. I didn't want to be in a business where I'm fighting with you and him and Yankee and Moishi. I, I don't want that. I want to be in a business where I could shine myself. And I knew very well that if you have a million dollars, you're not putting it in a Porter John company. Trust me. Mm-hmm. You're putting it on a different, putting it on a, putting it into different places and so on. And I also realized that at the time, there wasn't another Yeed. Actually, there is another guy in Williamsburg, which we work great together, great company that does what we do and a little bit different. He's, he's, he's geared 90% to construction. We're 50-50 between construction and events. It's a little bit different. We're nationwide. He's not, you know, know that type of thing um but i didn't know he existed at the time so i knew there's no you being in this business so i decided i'm going into that business so that was matzah shabbos thursday afternoon the first 112 112 because that's how the container comes first 112 porter john were delivered on a yard which we just rented you know because we had an office over there and a used truck i didn't have my license didn't have my permit but the guy that i bought the used truck from i convinced him to let his license go for the next six months until i get mine no dumping license, waste license, and so on. But the problem was the truck was a, was a stick shift. And the only b- between me and my partner, the only one that could drive a stick shift is me. Mm. And why am I the only one that could drive a stick shift? Because I was in, in Israel and in Israel when I was fifteen. <laughs> so I got that knowledge over there. So, so I buy that. So I buy the truck, buy the Porter Johns. It's like two weeks before Shoshana, and boom, we're in business. You know, come up with the name, come up with the slogan. You know, get it done, and so on. And I also knew one thing: I want to be different. I want to be distinct. I want to be, you know, out there. And my Porter Johns are purple. Our company's purple. John to go is purple. That was totally my idea, and I wanted to be different. So we did six months. We did with that partner. After six months, we were struggling. You want you go through a winter. Your toilets get frozen. Your truck gets frozen. I mean, it's it's just horrible. You know. And my partner says, "Look, either we're closing shop." We'll, we'll sell what we have or buy me out for what I invested. So I basically said, uh, I ain't giving up that fast. doesn't work like that. So my brother, which I had a real estate partnership with, cashed out a couple of dollars. We sold something. So this is still in 2005. It's 2005 now. So he bought out my partner. My brother and I are 50-50 partners in the business, you know, that type of a thing. Okay. So at the time when 2007 comes around, this company is doing gross sales of $600,000. Can you imagine? That's me. Basically, technically, you're losing money. Mm-hmm. I don't have a bank. I don't have a credit line. I have nothing. And 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 again, my trucks can't leave in some days because diesel is not. You know, I mean, you know. So so that's where I was. But I was hustling and I was working and I was fighting and I was calling. I was doing sales and I was doing you know um, cleaning and 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 we had the thing that we had. My brother and I used to go in the truck together, used to clean. I, 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 I used to always say this joke that we were once in KJ in Monroe and Curious Oil, and uh, we're delivering toilets, picking up toilets and whatever. And I'm younger. My brother's 11 years older than me. I'm younger, more, you know. So I'm just da- you know, getting up on the truck and down on the truck and pushing up four units and so on. And my brother's standing at the lift gate, just you know, making the, the lift gate up and down and so on. And my brother's a funny guy. So he basically says to these, um, to these kids, kids, if you're not going to learn good in Haider, you're going to look like him when you get older. <laughs> yeah. So, so Are you slowly fun. paying back the debt as the company starts to grow? So one of the things that, that I've – so that, but there was also other money that was coming in slowly. So there was – so let's say we had a deposit on a building. So we had to fight to get $50,000 back. So it was like $15,000. We had a retainer with an attorney. We said, you know what, don't do that anymore because there's no – you know, that type of a thing. So what I did with most of the Balachovis is – and again – it depends on natures of people. I'm telling you, every hundred dollars belong to 25 people. You know mm-hmm. that type of a thing, including running a business. So at that point, um, I, I sort of made these with these people. Basically, I say like this: Look, I want to pay you back tomorrow morning. My hope you're going to be paid up 100. percent Let's say a hundred thousand dollar issue. I want to pay you back tomorrow morning. 
my hope is by next year, this time you're gonna be you're gonna be paid back 100. And I gave him a whole sell because my business this and 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 that and 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 I was convinced. Trust me, I was convinced and so on. But right now, in order to show you that I'm not abandoning you, I'm giving you 50 dollars a week. Mm. Because I'm here. So like this, we could communicate. Every week we got to communicate. Here's your $50 and whatever and so on. So I did it that way. Um, and it wasn't easy. And I'm, I'm saying it to you right now that it's just easy and so on. No, I had to dodge many, many phone calls. And I had to, and I had, and I had at, at points, and, and, and there's actually a guy that lives here in, in, in the Five Towns. We're good friends. But, but I owed him money and he uh, used to come to our house, knock three o'clock in the morning. You know, the kids were scared. Um, I had at some points people screaming at my wife in the street. You know, mm-hmm. your husband owes this and that and the other and so on and so forth and so on. So that's that. It's very hard. The, the, one of the biggest issues is that, you know, so as I was going in 2000 and 2001, two, three, four, five, six, seven, being who I am, you know, so obviously you get, you know, you do custom shirts and then and a custom jacket and so on. And they're like, and how could you wear that custom shirt and it's got your name on it and so on? Like, what should I, should I burn it because I lost the money? What should I do with mm-hmm. it? You know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. But it's just people's frustration. Did people blame understand. you and say, hey, because you lived or worked a certain way, this is your fault? And, and was that part of it? Or would they say, I don't care. Just, just get me my money. No, I don't think. Pe- uh, um, I don't remember people blaming me. I don't remember people blaming me. I just remember that the frustration that people poured on us was the frustration that somebody is pouring on them. Mm. It wasn't anybody that's sitting with ten million dollars and he has an issue with my hundred thousand dollars. And I had those people, and these people were fine. They were sitting. They were waiting. Mm-hmm. Some of them said, "Let's do it." Had the risk, and it's going to cost you interest. Some people said, "It's fine." Some people, where I gave away some stuff, and I more than that, I had at the time I had collectibles of of, of Ksovim and and old you know books and, and so on and so forth, Svarim and and type of things, probably close to a three quarter of a million dollars. And I and I and, and most people didn't want it. They needed the money at the time. It was it was crazy times. Mm-hmm. But some people took that in, in, in exchange. No, no, no. And I had a watch collection which I gave up. No, that, I, I don't think I don't. I don't remember anybody pointing a finger or blaming. I'm sure there was enough blame because, again, the flamboyant type of a person mm-hmm. that's building your wealth is obviously the person that's, that's flamboyant in general when mm-hmm. it comes to Tadok and everything else. Um, and a lesson like 2007 gives you the lesson to chill, dude, you know, hello, mm-hmm. <laughs> calm down. Um, but it was more, um, they were under pressure, so they under pressured me. That's, that's fine, you know, that type of thing. How many years did it take for you? you are you paid back on that? Paid back 100%. What year do you think you were paid back? In 2017. 2017, so about 10 years. It took me about 10 exactly. years, 11 years to, to get totally over, yeah. You remember the day that you... <laughs> no, because I don't remember the day because it doesn't go like that because what happens is once you start making money, so you have all these monies that are being paid on a monthly basis. So so the $50 guy goes up to 100 and to 500 and to 1,000 and to 1,500 and some of these stuffs are on credit cards and so on. So you don't always connect where they're up to. You just at some point, you start making your calculations and so on. So it wasn't a specific day. It's just it's... It's, it's happening. I would imagine the percentage of people through life, from the beginning of creation until now, 99.99999, weiter, 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 percent, have not made that amount of money, then lost it, and then started making money. Um, it's a very unique scenario. Have you met other people that went from rags to riches to, riches. to rags to riches? So... Because you do have some people that have made it and then they keep it. They're not. They're not experiencing a two thousand seven crash. Right. Here, you not only went from zero to mega multi millionaire, but you paid it back and now you have a successful company and you're doing well. Um, you've never met anyone like that, have you? 
so there's stories out there and and people that I could put names out sure. of, of I'm, I'm not gonna but I could put names out that people that went through these things you know upside down and so on and so forth but I need to I need to clarify one thing very simple because you called me a millionaire before 2007. I was a fake millionaire. Mm. I, was, I was a millionaire on a delusion. I'm going to tell you something very funny. I remember at some point in 2003, 2004, and the reason why I'm saying 2003, 2004, because I live in my house that I live right now 16 years, and my son is 16 years, so 16 years old. So he was born in, in September 2004. So this was still in my, old, my apartment that I lived at, okay? And granted, I'm, buying, I'm, I'm driving a BMW 750, you know, playing the thing and so on. And more than that, when I was a landlord, I made deals with these. So I had C-class properties, you know, kids that were coming from, you know, um, underprivileged, uh, you know, houses, public school and so on. I used to make deals with them on their tests. I'll give you a dollar. I was, you know, Mr. John Gotti type of thing, you mm-hmm. know. So, so um, what I was going to tell you is, yeah, I remember once in my still old apartment, based on what I bought in terms of unrelated to business for say, including investing in certain businesses and not all my businesses were successful. I had to close businesses Um, and and proudly so. I have no issue with it. It wasn't good. I had one business that was open for 10 months and basically at the end of the day, my brothers were partners over there. I told my brothers, I don't care what, when, where, take everything we have in that inventory and you start from the first of the month until the 20th. By the 20th of the month, whatever is not sold, dump it. I don't want to spend another month on rent for that for that facility just like that in the 10 months dumb down just a million dollars just like that it is what it is okay but to answer your question is i remember once a story i was sitting at at night at home and i'm making a calculation that i have so much money in my unrelated stuff so let's say watch collection or because i have expensive car or whatever stuff for me let's say say like that so if I sell everything that, and at that point I didn't have these 400 houses, so if I sell all the houses that I have with all the profits that will come out, I'll sort of break even. Mm. You know what that tells you? That tells you guys out of control. So I wasn't a millionaire beforehand. I was incorporated and entangled and liable for millions of dollars, which an educated person would not do that. Mm. I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. I'm an educated person. I think I'm a very educated person. An educated person in the, in, an educated person in the world of investment and charts, stats, would not do that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. It now, would be irresponsible. It would be irresponsible. Right. What I do say, and mostly when I speak, I do public speaking for non it doesn't matter. So at the public speaking, and again, like I said before, I do not take any money for it because the concept is I could have easily been where, I could have not because Hashem didn't want to, but in, in, in a Der Chateva world, I could have been where I'm today 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I just made stupid mistakes. Mm-hmm. But these stupid mistakes helped me to the point where when I, I speak to non-Yiddish um, public speakings, I used to tell my this. I don't tell them I got kicked out of yeshiva. I basically say, I, I, basically, I didn't do college. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, I got kicked out of high school because just you know to relate to them, to relate to the high school setup in terms mm-hmm. of yeshiva versus yeshiva. Um, now, I, I I I tell them that in general, I do believe that people that do college, college does nothing for you unless you're going for a specific education, such as being a lawyer, a doctor, um, an engineer, something where you need that actual degree to be able to do it. But 98% of people that do college, they, they do nothing with it. It helps them nothing. And if it does one thing, it actually reduces their chances of becoming an entrepreneur because it scares them away by all the stats and everything that puts out there. 
So I also did college, but my college cost me four and a half million dollars. Right? That's but, actually what the cost of college is, real college these days. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> but I want to know from Square, I know. So it cost me four and a half million dollars. But at the end of the day, it gave me an education and kept me with my entrepreneurial spirit. So that's the answer. And I, and I heard not long ago from, I think um, Bezos or somebody said, not Bezos, I think it was Elon Musk who said, if you really want to get an education, you could see everything on YouTube today. Why are you going to college for? Right. You know? seen that. So, so today, let's do rapid fire because we have a bunch of questions. I spoke to people. They had, um, you know, we don't usually have guests like you, so they want to hear your opinions. Um, today, what is your portfolio look like? How much of it is real estate versus the Porta company? other companies so for so after after 2007 2009 so 2000 so we are so we own a company called john to go that's a port of john company it's just a typical port of john company i saw locally before one of the trucks passing over here call ahead which is local here on the you know on the on the water over there so a typical port of john company it's a local company we have our own trucks i own equipment and so on um i, I opened that in 2004 grew that until today Today and continuing today, John Togo has offices, obviously in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Um, but we have an office. We have offices in Florida, South Florida. So we have an office in Miami area, Homestead, Florida. We have an office in Southwest Florida, which is Fort Myers, Naples, Sarasota. You know that area. We have an office in Austin, Texas, and in Dallas, Texas. Then we have an office. Then we have a company called VIP Togo. Uh, VIP Togo basically is the fancy restroom and shower trailers. Um, who you who who would hire you? So, so there's long-term business and short-term, short-term business. So the short guy, short understanding is a guy is doing a bar mitzvah in his backyard, and he doesn't have any bathrooms. He doesn't want everybody to go into his house. He wants to take something fancy, something that has a fireplace in it, something that has um, fresh running water, something that has AC or, or heating in this time of the year. That would be the typical. Um, what right is now, a weekend uh, rental cost? So they go from like smaller trailers to bigger trailers, so anywhere from let's say twelve hundred to four and a half thousand. Depends. Okay. It's a big ticket item. Right. Um, so you have that. Right now we're in Florida doing an event for Louis Vuitton, for example, mm-hmm. and they're spending uh, the area fifty thousand uh, dollars for the weekend in toilets. Um, we do the largest boat show in Fort Lauderdale every year, and um, they spend a couple hundred thousand dollars in portable toilets. You know that type of thing. So that's that company. That company is a nationwide company. That company will open in twenty nineteen. Um, Most of that is digitally. I'm, I'm from the digital marketing background, so I'm just thinking how you're marketing PPC is. SEO. Okay. PPC, so SEO, click, social media. Google, social Google media. yeah. Very cool. That's basically what we do on that one. Um, You're outsourcing that or you have your own internal teams at this point? So very good question. Um, so I'm a big believer in outsourcing. So let me back up for a second. I'm a big believer of every person sitting down by a table, and you could do this once a month, and basically say, what am I not good in? And what you're not good in, that's a lot more important than to know what you are good in. Because if you know what you're not good in, then you could outsource that. So sometimes you outsource it by a third party, which technically works for you on payroll. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you will be outsourcing that to an outsourcing company. So I am a big believer in outsourcing if possible. So for an example, customer service, I have a dime a dozen people call me on a weekly basis to outsource to the, you know, India, Philippines, so on and so forth. I can't. My company is a very, um, in John to go, it's a very hands-on, need to understand the customers. You know, every question could be asked five different ways and it just outsourcing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I have another company called Guardian Booth. And Guardian Boot manufactures prefabricated structures, any type of a structure where you could just basically pick it up on a truck and take it. So that would be a ticket booth or a security booth or, or a 
you got into that business because of Jan to go. I don't know if yeah. Uh, but it's a totally separate company, nothing to do one with another, equally as big. Um, These are all privately owned? Any public traded the companies? companies? No, no I'll tell you my end game, but not uh, my end game. My end game is to live and uh, to be a good Jew, but I'm yeah. saying is, um, but yes, my end game. Um, so what happens is in that company, we do outsource. We do have, you know, you know, some that work, um, we have somebody in Dubai and a couple in India and so on and so forth. So if you could outsource, outsource. If you can't outsource, you can't outsource. People do a, a double take when they hear that you're in the toilet business. Yeah, right? sure, absolutely. To They're just like, toilet business? And they, and they always ask me, so how is business? And first, the first response I get when people say that is said, oh, that's a good business. And my answer is like every business if you run it right. right. But then they say, but how is business? And I say, you used the bathroom already today? <laughs> it's good. <That's> good. <laughs> you know? So you have John to go. So we have John to go. VIP, VIP to go. go. We opened Guardian 2019, Booth. Guardian Booth. Um, we do have a couple of little companies that we bought over the years that we incorporated into John to go. Okay. Um, portable toilet companies. Now, we're not looking to be a public traded company. Okay. Um, we do have an end game. At least I'm going to speak for John to go, not for Guardian Booth, but for John to go and VIP to go, the end game is to at some point sell it. You okay. sell it to a bigger company or to a hedge fund type of a thing. We are a service-based company, which trades pretty high on the net EBITDA. Okay. Um, and um, we do have a dollar amount where we want to be, which we understand in order to be the dollar amount, you have to have the multiplications of income and nets and so on and so forth. So when mm -hmm. people call and they call on a weekly basis that they want to buy, I also say, mm -hmm. look, you could either pay me that number today or you could wait five years. <laughs> right. so, um, so I'm okay either way, you know, that type of a thing. Um, but that's an end game. The reason why I'm saying what my end game is, is because I believe it's very, very, very important that everybody has to have an end game in, 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 uh, in business. And the reason why you need an end game is because without an end game, why do we have Shabbos? Because there's a closure to the week. Why do we have Pesach? Because there's an end game to when I need to have my house finished. So in Yaakov's case, when do you, why do you have Thanksgiving? So you could finish cooking this beautiful uh, stuff that he had last week, right? It's Yaakov Langer in the crowd. <laughs> Yaakov Langer, that's it. So, so that's the concept. You need to have an end game because if you don't have an end game, you don't have a goal. If you don't have a goal, you don't have a purpose. If you don't have a purpose, you're not doing anything. So the concept is very simple. If my end game is $100 million, mm -hmm. my question is what multiplications do I need in my business to be able to get to a $100 million sale? I need XY gross, XY net. Now you take these numbers. How much product do I need to be able to do that? How much people? How much money will it take? How fast can I get there? That's the answer. And you just get there. It's that simple. But if you don't have it on paper without a goal, you're not going to get there. Some people are lucky. They, they win the lottery. I'm talking normal people, you and me. Right. <laughs> you know, that at, type of a thing. At least I'm normal. I, I think <laughs> you, uh, you're in a class of your own. So, okay, John to go, VIP to go, Guardian Booth. Any real estate now? Yeah. So, um, so what happens is like this. So, in 2007, we lost. 2008, 2009, lawsuits, this, that, or whatever. So, now you can imagine your name is ruined and it takes time to build back your name and blah, 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 and so on and so forth and everything. So, then I, um, so I don't buy any real estate. And people ask me, you know, you're crazy. The market is going, you know, and since this, you know, the market was so low in 2008 that by 2014, you could buy amazing deals and so on and so forth. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not doing this again with other people's money. It's mm. not happening. I had this already. And, and I, 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 I could maneuver myself, the court system. I could maneuver myself um, with, the, with the bank system. I understand all that. And, and, and there's no harm. Nobody cares. It's all corporations. It's all yummy chummy. Nobody cares about you in specific. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a big um, structure how this works. I'm not taking people's money. Done, over with, I don't care. Mm -hmm. So it took me until I had to pay off, until I could pay off um, everybody, or at least most everybody, and to be able to buy. And my first, so I, my, my first 
purchase was actually buying back my own house from the bank. Mm. I bought my house from the bank originally for five hundred thousand. I bought my house from the contractor originally for five hundred thousand um, dollars. I lived there for free for twelve or thirteen years. Separate Seattle Shmaya, how I went through. I lost the house twice. You have no idea. It was a separate story. I don't know how much time we have, whatever. And um, then I bought the house back for four hundred and sixty thousand. Mm-hmm. That's that's basically what the sale was. Um, then we were looking for a building with um, for Guardian Booth actually. So we started working with a good friend of mine. I don't know if you say names or not, but Eliasan from Cross River Bank, great guy. Um, and and and, and gotta get Cross River to sponsor this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we bought one building, closed that building, a commercial building, mm-hmm. closed that building, and like every SBA loan, I mean, me, my wife, kids, grandkids, cats, dog, everybody signs on it. I mean, it's like at that point, was your wife nervous or she calmed down? Nah, no, this is this no, this is years later. This okay. is like we're living already. We're okay. living, but okay. we're we're smoothing. No like, more Doctor Kranzler, right? No, no, no. Kranzler's <laughs> only one one <laughs> session <laughs> for twenty minutes. He owes me change. <laughs> he owes me change. <laughs> no refunds. No refunds. Exactly. So, um, so then, um, so we bought that property. Came back from. The closing, 7 o'clock at night, the closing was in Manhattan, brutal closing. Came in Manhattan, and this guy calls me up, a guy that I know calls me up, and he's a real estate broker and says, I heard you bought this property because I was a country for a long time. And I said, yes. I said, I want to buy it. And I said, it's not for sale. So he says, do you want to meet me at the property? I said, I'm going to come there with my kids because I was so proud of, again, owning real estate, you know, and so on. And as a matter of fact, it was a firehouse. And, and the people that know me would know exactly what I'm talking about. And um, so, uh, so I, I went there because I kept on joking that when I close it, I'm going to get one of these remote fire trucks that my kids have, and I'm going to physically back in that fire truck into the firehouse. <laughs> That's to be stupid, you know? I didn't do it. but So we went with my kids. I said, I want to meet me. And he comes around, and he looks, this, that, and so on, whatever. And he said, um, I have a buyer that has a 1031 exchange. He needs, he needs an exchange, and he needs to buy the property, and he needs to so on and so on. So I said, listen, Yoli, you know what? This is the dollar amount. And this was two weeks before Pesach, and this was the first time when I physically had money so, oh, it was the year my mother passed away, actually. My mother passed away in January. So, so, so this was, and I, I told my father, being alone, we're going to go pay off that's a stroll. Until then, I always was dying to do it, but I couldn't do it. I, w- I owed everybody money. I couldn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I went places, but I'm saying is I couldn't do a flamboyant thing like going pay off that's a stroll, which is a lot of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. So I was going to go. And, um, and I said, Yuri, I'm leaving in two weeks. So I'm leaving in two weeks. Um, have a contract by my attorney. I could say his name too, Rafi Berlin, awesome friend. Um, so I had a contract by Rafi for that amount, take it or leave it. I don't want to sell it and so on. And the deposit was there and the contract was there and we sold it. So now we have a problem. We made a decent, with my partner actually, my guardian boot partner. So we made a serious amount of money. Now we got to start buying stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I realized and I started thinking, why wasn't I making money in real estate when I was re- when real estate was my business? And how is it that I'm not in the real estate business Real estate is just an investment for me, and now I'm starting to make money. So in real in, in real estate, big money. I mean, it was a decent amount of money. So and then I realized, because real estate isn't a business, real estate is an investment. Anybody that would tell you that real estate is a business is faking and lying to himself, and it's not so. And I'm going to go back to that conversation that 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 the schmooze, the drush I gave in Yazori, and uh, that you know I had 500 chassidim sitting over there, and I said this this same thing. I said. Real estate is not a business. Real estate is an investment. And as long as you're going to 
look at real estate as a business, you're not going to make any money. And when you're going to start looking at real estate as an investment and you have a business doing something else that covers your day-to-day, you're going to start making money in real estate because I see it firsthand. Do others in the real estate circles agree with this sentiment? So when I did say that, I had maybe 100 people wanted to kill me. Are you saying I'm not a businessman? Right. And I said, I could live and die 120 years without being a malamut. It's fine. Who says you have to be a businessman? Everybody has to be a businessman? So you're not a businessman. Big deal. They couldn't swallow it. Mm. So they want to have an explanation. So I gave them a very simple explanation. So the perfect explanation right now to understand it because the market is very tight with the fix and flip type of houses mm-hmm. because there's just not a lot of foreclosures going on. So look at it this way. Assuming your life costs you $200,000 a year, your business is real estate. What do you do in real estate? You basically buy, you fix up, and you sell. Now you have two pickup trucks, you have, you, know, you have a girl in the office, you have two guys doing the maintenance, you have yourself and so on. So now you, you created a big budget that you have to cover. So five years ago, you bought a house for 100, you put in 50,000, you sold it for 250, you made 100 grand on it, okay? Now because the market is tight, so every house has a lot more competition, supply and demand. So now you could only buy the house for 150, 200,000, you have to put in maybe 20, 30, maybe make a scratchy 20,000 $20, dollars. So the reason why you're doing that, not because it's a good investment, because it's not a good investment anymore. The reason why you're doing it is because real estate is your business, and that's how you're going to bring home payroll to your wife. And that's how you're going to float the two cars lease payments, and that's how you're going to support your office person, and that's how you're going to support your person. So you took an, an investment vehicle, and you turned it into a business with the pressure of what the business has to have in results. This year, the result is not there. So now you're creating a problem. You're creating choivis. That's what you're doing. Versus if my business is John to go for say, that's where I cover my expenses from. Real estate is an investment. It's an instrument. It's a vehicle. I make sound decisions. It's a good investment. It's a bad investment. Today is the right day. Tomorrow is the right day. You will see that some years you can have a great business or great businesses, and some years you will make a lot more money in real estate than you'll make in your businesses because these this year or these few years are just better in real estate. It's that simple. Very interesting. At the point right now, we own about a half a million square feet of warehouse space, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, then a bunch of residential type of a thing. But we own every building that we that we're sitting in. So our main headquarters in Ringwood, New Jersey, we own that building. We bought it with Cross River with Ellie with SBA. Um, we own the building in Homestead, Florida, where we have our uh, Miami uh, location. It's a big five acres, 40,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. Um, we own um, in Fort Myers, where we just opened up. We're, we're in contract right now to buy that property um, that we're renting right now. So I'm a big believer of owning real estate. It's very important. A lot of people, um, they actually had they had money in, in businesses like um, like they were doing um, knitting and stuff in the 60s and 70s. And the whole knitting business went to China and it went down. But they they, they stayed wealthy people because of because of real estate. So that's basically where it is. So my day is, in, is, is mostly busy with John To Go. I run John To Go on a day-to-day basis. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the quote-unquote CEO, whatever that means. Um, but we do have CFO and COO and operations manager and dispatch and maintenance and customer service and everything else and so on. It's a full-fledged business, no question about that. But I'm growing very, very, uh, very fast and, and, and keep on going that way. You personally, oh. you own stocks? I own stocks and I own crypto, yeah. So um, I own both, yeah. Bitcoin? Yeah, tell you a funny story what happened. Go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, this weekend I was in Turks with my wife, and um, Turks and Caicos, and um, I, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of this car that's coming out, an electric car called Rivian. Yeah, Haven't, hasn't sold uh, They had, They yet. sold, they sold one or two, they delivered, whatever. <laughs> okay. So in 2019, December 2019, I put down $1,000 because to me, so my brother, my partner drives a Tesla. Okay. So I drive a BMW. 
So when I go to meetings with him, I always make fun. This is my poor brother doesn't have money for gas. I have money for gas. I drive a real car, you know. Mm -hmm. But they had this car. It looks like a Suburban. It's a seven-passenger for like $78,000, $80,000, you know. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to put down $1,000 for it. So I put down $1,000 for that car December 2019. So now when they went on the IPO, they, they went on the stocks, uh, stock market. So obviously Morgan Stanley reached out to everybody that invested in the beginning. So they want to invest. So they gave you only 175 shares to invest in at $78 a share. So that came out to be $13,650. And then I had another car on a pickup truck that I had to put a, that I, that I put a deposit. So they asked me if I want to do another 175 stocks on a separate account. Morgan Stanley has separate. I never had a Morgan Stanley account. I have TD Ameritrade. I have, uh, I have um, a Vanguard, you know. Uh, so, so um, and then on crypto, I have crypto and so on. So, I, um, so they say if I want to put another 175 Another 175 shares, yes, but I never made the deposit, so a week and a half went by and so on. So a, fr a Friday, I'm in Turks, and I get an email. So we're going in a truck. I have bad service. I'm going to a place, and I, I'm getting an email that I need to deposit the money today, the 13650 Otherwise, that IPO, is, I mean, that 175 shares is just not mine and so on. So I, I hook up my bank account. I make an ACH um, uh, payment of 13650 but because of the service was so choppy and everything for some reason i made it 13 million six hundred and fifty thousand did it go through <laughs> so so i so I, I do my activity i do my thing and so on and then i come back to the hotel so i call up morgan stanley and i tell morgan stanley obviously you see it's an honest mistake i wasn't going to invest 13 13 million because you're only selling me 175 right. shares so cancel the transaction i'll do another transaction so on they can't it's processed already call your bank and stop it's so a bank at td so I call up my branch, ring with the I jersey. I have that problem all the time. I, I, yeah, but go ahead. <laughs> what do you mean you have the problem? I, I, I sometimes mean $13 and I send $13 million and it's too late. <laughs> I never had this issue, but, <laughs> okay. so far, but I got to tell you the funny part of it. So I call up, ring with TD Bank and TD Bank says, there's nothing I could do. Oh, and Morgan Stanley lady says, don't worry, Mr. Brewer, we'll send you back the rest. And I'm like, thinking, oh, yeah, if I have it on my account, nice. <laughs> so ring, uh, TD Bank, which does know my account, says, there's nothing you could do. It's just going to bounce and come back and so on. Okay, whatever. Honest mistake. I asked TD to know their account that I called in. I asked Morgan Stanley to know their account that as soon as it comes back, I'll do the normal deposit and so on. Two hours later, I don't know why, I just go in and I want to see what, how my portfolio is doing at Morgan Stanley. I made on that $13,202,000. Oh, really? <laughs> ah, they're going to take it away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that was just so funny. You became a day trader for, uh, for an a hour minute, or For two. a minute. That's for funny. Hours, that was funny. But yeah, I do have stocks. Not a lot. Um, I have stocks. Crypto um, you said you have? So I have crypto. So I think you, you told me that you had a guest over here. Um, uh, what's his name? Horowitz. Um, Remy Horowitz. Naftali Horowitz. Um, yeah. So Naftali Horowitz. Great guy. Great yeah. guy. Great story. No question. And yeah. I told you I've, I've, I've been at events twice actually where I've spoken to get like he was doing. And I was, yeah. So crypto. He's more for, conservative. Yeah, you know? yeah. 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 So crypto for him is an absolute no-no. Uh -huh. And um, and I'll tell you, for anybody, should be a no-no. So the only money that I play with crypto is money that you would maybe go to Six Flags, so money that mm -hmm. you would maybe walk into a casino for five hundred dollars and so mm -hmm. on. So my crypto portfolio is a lot of money today, but it wasn't. So and, and I'm not gonna say a lot of money because for a lot of people that may not be a lot of money, but in, 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 it's it's basically in the area of about a hundred thousand dollars. But it, I didn't invest that much. I mean, I didn't ask closely to that much. It's just that as I have every week that automatically a couple of dollars goes in, a couple of dollars goes in, mm -hmm. and that's that. Uh, but in stocks, I'm definitely with him that uh, long-term, 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 absolutely, and no penny stocks. You mentioned you're a helicopter pilot? Yes. I mean, you have the personality of someone, you know, if someone's not conservative. Um, so how did that all my about? kids went on the, on, the, on the helicopter ready with me, except 
My wife. Your wife. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Huh. And the funny thing is, she should be the happier one. I be- I'm a big believer in life insurance if you have money. So we could talk about life insurance in a minute. So in, com- in combination between my wife and I, between the companies that buy and sell and so on, we have about $100 million worth of life insurance. So she should be the first person to say, are you going again? Are you going tomorrow again? You know, but she's not. <laughs> so you have $100 million in life insurance. Roughly. I mean, that's obviously not the norm. That's a result of the companies that you have. So I'll, I'll tell you like this. Every company that has a partnership has to have a buy and sell policy. A buy and sell policy is simple as a pimple. It has to be there. Explain it, to people what that so, is. So a buy and sell means very simple. So let's say you have a company that's worth $10 million, okay? And, 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 and you could go a little bit more, um, you could graduate. So let's say, even if the company's only worth $7 million, you could say it's worth $15 million. It's not the end of the world. Let's just say it's worth $15 million, okay? And um, you have a partner, what you do is you let's say 50 50 partners just easier to explain it that way you basically buy a policy seven and a half million dollars and there's a couple of ways i had to do it but in the simple aspect is seven and a half million dollars so let's say you and i are partners 50 million dollar company we buy seven and a half million dollars on you seven and a half million dollars on me god forbid you pass away your seven and a half million dollars goes to your family and that buys you out of the business and vice versa if it happens with me so the concept is i don't want to be a partner with your wife i'm sure she's a great person but I do not want to be a partner, and I certainly do not want to be partners with your kids. Um, and huge issues happens when, when this happens. So again, going back to the initial concept, we are in business for money. And the reason why we're in business for money, because that's unfortunately the way we survive in this world, mm-hmm. um, especially Eden. It costs a lot of money, and Eden need money. There's no question about that. So what happens is, um, being, going back to that same part of it, you do a buy and sell. It does not have to be a whole policy. As a matter of fact, businesses that are growing, and more or less struggling, or at least not struggling, but they need their money to be able to put in other places in the business um, where they need to grow the business. They need to do term policies, not a whole policy. Term policies like your car insurance. Mm -hmm. You just pay, and as long as you pay, you have it. So it's minimum, minimum, minimum. It's there for protection. If you have a partnership, as bad as you struggle, I don't care, and you don't have a buy and sell, in my words, you're an absolutely madman. You have to have a buy and sell. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is is that for years I had this question. You always see these videos or you read these motivational things and, and so on. And they always say, rich people get richer with other people's money. Rich people get richer with banks' money. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I understand it because if the bank will write you a credit line for a million dollars and not to me, so obviously you have first, first dips on the building across the street that's for sale, right? So I get that. But I, I wanted to understand it deeper. And my concept was always, I always owned life insurance here and there and so on. And over the years, I had them lapsing. You don't ask. It was like a chasana. And <clears throat> until I realized, you know, whole policies and uh, Rabbi Horowitz actually, he's, I'm with them also. If a, life, if a life insurance agent walked in and says a whole policy is an investment, he's lying. It's not an investment. It's absolutely not an investment. It's at best a savings account. And I'll tell you for whom, for a guy like me, which doesn't save any money because everything is just, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But bills get paid. You do a whole policy and you're forced to put it into your savings account, but it's only a savings account. That's all there is. Right. I think y'all Bodak explained like you would be one of the instances in which where, where it's where it's important because I'm forced sense. to right. put into it. Yeah. So so I um so but that was you know olden days. So basically so I always had the question very simple. The question is a life insurance policy a life insurance agent walks into you and says, Okay, so let's buy you have life insurance? Yeah. Okay, you have whole term. I have both. You have both. So let's say you have a whole policy for a million dollars. You pay around $7,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, I mean, $7,000 a year. And what they're telling you is that in 10 years from now, you're not going to have to pay a penny, and you're going to have a cash value close to what you had invested into the policy. 
Okay. That's what I have now. I mean, I don't have that high, but I have a $250,000 whole term policy. I've put in $12,000, $13,000 so far, and that's how much the cash value is. The cash is value right is. Yeah. So that's exactly, it's a savings account. Right. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. At but, least in the first 10, 15 years of the policy. Meaning if it's that, a 30 year policy. It's not 30 year. It's a whole, it's forever. Right. No, but I mean, I have to pay in for 30 oh, so you years. Have to pay for so that. right. At some point, that value will increase where. The first 10, 15 years is the where two fifty debt right. benefit will increase right. because now they're paying now they're making more money because you have more savings in their investment. So now they're paying for more policy. Absolutely. So that two fifty will go to three hundred and fifty. And the cash value will go higher. Absolutely. Right. Now, um, and again, in a business buy and sell, mm-hmm. keep the money to grow the business and buy a term policy, not a whole policy. Right. Don't make that mistake. Now, my question was always <clears throat> you understand the value of how much I'm valued and how much my financial statement is valued. In other words, is my financial statement could be $100 million. But technically, if you're saying to me right now, Abe, I have a crazy investment, and I need, you need to put in $5 million, I technically don't have the $5 million. It's sitting in buildings, it's sitting in businesses, it's sitting in stocks, it's sitting everywhere else, mm-hmm. right? So there's a huge difference in the American society of how, of how money works, of what your financial statement is, and what your actual cash value is. That's the, your, your liquidity. That's, that's basically what it mm-hmm. is. So my question was always, Assuming I go and I sell you a $50 million policy, or I'm going to make it in numbers that I could actually know because I did it, so a $30 million policy, and instead of instead of the 250 that you have, a whole policy, so it never ends, and the $30 million by the age 90, when you're 90, is going to be a debt, debt, a debt payout of, let's say, $60 million, okay? And year 10 is going to have a cash value of $4 million, so... Now I'm talking to you numbers that you could actually do something with this stuff because with $4 million, you could actually loan, take it out from the life insurance policy as a loan, buy something that generates 6% on return when you're paying 3% on your loan or whatever the mm-hmm. case is, and you're actually making money on the bank's money. That means making money on the bank's money. The problem is having a $30 million whole policy, your annual premium is about eight dollars $900,000. Mm-hmm. How do you shuffle that for 10 years? Mm-hmm. So that was my question. Why can't I find the bank that looks at me with bank's eyes at $100 million net value and loan me that money. He should dance the dance with me for 10 years. Interesting. And I found it. So I have a $60 million policy, 30 on me, 30 on my wife. In combo, it costs about $1.8 and change, $1.8 million and change in annual premium. With most of the money, so just like you said, your 12 13 that you put in so, so far is... The cash value is twelve thirteen. So the cash value is the security to the bank that invested the money into it. <clears throat> so most of the money becomes cash value right away. So in essence, there's a shortfall the first year, the second year, and the third year. First year, a big one. Second year, a smaller one. Third year, a smaller one. And that's that. That's when the bank starts paying. And your three-year shortfall, you could actually pull out after year six, seven, eight, whatever that's there. But then you take $60 million, which in combo between my wife and I, at age 90 for say, it's about $100 million. Mm-hmm. Now you're leaving wealth. Now you're not splitting $100 million between your seven kids. Now it goes into a trust. And whatever that trust makes, let's say 4%, let's say 5%, 4 $5 million a year, that's what they split on for, mm. as long as it goes. Okay, that yeah. type of a thing. And in the same token is when you are 10 years into the policy and your son wants to buy a business and you need liquidity of a couple of million dollars, you have it. And all you had invested is 10% here and 10% there because the bank was paying the rest. Interesting. Wow. So 
we're coming up on the close here. There's so much more we can go into. I know uh, partnerships is something that we just scratched the surface, and, and I'm sure you can go. Um, what would be a closing remark, something you want people that maybe helps you sleep better at night, that they should know, something that keeps you up at night, an issue you see, a solution, um, whether financial or not, something you want to leave the audience with? So I think the most important thing is people have to recognize themselves for what they are. Very, very important. So in other words is, I know I can't work for you. I won't be able to sit in the office. I won't, I, I'm sure I would do great and I will excel and be amazing and so on, but that's just not my nature. And even if I go ahead and I do that, it's probably a, 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 a I don't know if it's the right word, but a miscarriage of justice for what my capabilities are, you know, that type of a thing. And then there's people that if I put them into my shoes to do what I need to do, they would absolutely flop. I mean, it would absolutely not happen. It would absolutely flop. It would be unbelievable. But it would be great CEOs, COOs, and so on. So what I'm telling you is coach yourself to understand what are you good in. There's only two types of people. It's either the entrepreneur type of a guy. And, and the, the perfect example is how many times have somebody asked you the question or how many times have you asked yourself the question, well, I have $50,000. What's a great investment to, it, to put it into? And I always have to tell people, if I tell you that I give you 10% return on your $50,000, that's basically $5,000 a year, yeah? That's an amazing investment. Who makes 10%? Well, now people are making a lot of money. But in general, who makes 10% across the board? Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost impossible to make every year 10%, right? But if I tell you, so you're only going to make $5,000? No, I want to make 100000 I want to make 150000 Well, if it's an apple, it's not going to be a duck. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So recognize who you are because it, you have to understand what you're good in. Then the next step is understand what you're not good in. It took me many, many years to realize finances ain't my thing. I'm just not good at it. So somebody else needs to do it for me. Mm -hmm. It's just the end of the day. And at that point, you basically want to understand the third thing, which is basically your commitment. My commitment when I started doing John to go or any other company, and even till today, my commitment is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At the end of the day, half of the week, I'm not home. I sit in Florida two, three days a week in, in, you know, in the offices. I fly to Texas. Chances are tomorrow I'm going to light candles in a hotel and my kids will do it themselves. It's a sacrifice that you have to understand that you want to do, obviously, in combination with your partner. I mean, if your wife is not up for it or your kids are not up for it, then you, know, you, you have to take a different path. But once you recognize these three steps, who are you? Basically, how much do you want to commit to get it done and your basic cap capabilities of getting it done? Then you could start thinking, what's the maximized um, prize for what I could do? And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Sometimes I, f I see people and I say, you went to college, yeah, and they became, let's say, a, some sort of a doctor that took them eight years, but it's maybe a, I don't know, let's just say a, a toenail doctor. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm not good in that stuff and so on. And it pays, let's say, $100,000 a year. The same eight years, you could have become an emergency room emergency medicine and make $350,000 a year, to me, you're dumb. You wasted eight years to make $100,000 when you could do the same time and the same effort. So what you need to do is once you see the whole package, who you are, what's the max that I could fight for? And I'm going to tell you a little story and I'm going to go with that. So basically, there's a younger man because I think it's, it's, it's just a model story for people that have a lot more tools than even a Hasidic guy that I'm going to tell you the story of. So for example, you know how to write and read English. I can't write or read script. When I write English, I write only, only big letters. I can't write small. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the story with English is, is because my father's from England, so he knew English very well. So my older brothers, they know English very well. They, they got bachelor degrees and so on and so forth. So then this a, a, a sister, my sister, three brothers, and then a few girls, and then it's me. So when they went to school, to Haider, English wasn't good over there, you know, in square. So he took a 
English teacher from Yeshiva Spring Valley that came to our house and, 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 and you know, taught them English and so on. So when I had to go to English, which was maybe like two times or three times a week, um, he said, don't go. I'm going to get you the same idea, the same teacher. He never ended up giving me the teacher, but I never ended up going for the, okay. But I want to tell you this concept. So there's this young man that works for one of the big kitchen companies in that we know. There's these few big, big, big cabinet kitchen companies and so on. He doesn't know how to read, write. His English is horrendous. I mean, horrible. And I gave him this whole thing. Also, basically said, recognize what, which of these two people you are, how much can you take on yourself, you know, that type of thing and so on, and do this together with your wife. Because if you are on the same page and she is not on the same page, you know, <laughs> if I want to fly a, a helicopter and my wife needs to be my co-pilot, I'm obviously not flying, right? So you have to be able to recognize what you could do, what you can do. So he did that. And he basically came to the conclusion that he would be an amazing COO, chief operating officer. Before he came to me, I want to be the CEO, I want to be the CFO, and he didn't even know how to say it, and he didn't know how to it, and so on. So he went and he got a resume. He made himself, you know, made himself a resume with heart and sweat and so on. And he walked into his boss with the resume and he said, "Look, this is what I want to go for." And I want to, you know, he was getting paid then seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. The COO position was paying one hundred sixty, one hundred seventy thousand dollars, and all that. Thing. This is, I think, that I'm very good in. I think I have systems in place. I understand the people. I understand the operations part of it, and so on. I obviously first give you the dips because I understand your business, so that's better for me. And also, I'm here. Why would you want to replace me? The guy said, "Absolutely not. You are off your rockers. I mean, you're you're crazy, and so on." We got him to one of the the agencies, um, the employment agencies, whatever. Sat with these guys, gave him the the his resume, and he told them why he could really be from an operations person in a department to chief operating officer over departments and operations and so on. They got him a job for $150,000. Six months later, his previous boss pouched him out for $220,000 to become CEO of that company. Mm. Because he realized what he's good in. Because before he didn't realize what he's good in, he wanted to be CEO. He can't be CEO. Mm. And it's not going to happen. So there's a lot of money out there. Don't think narrow-minded. When you make a mortgage, when you buy a building and, and you somehow have the ways of the investor that could, that could invest with you, so instead of looking at the $3 million mortgage, it's the same paperwork as a $10 million mortgage. Get that done. Um, try to make that the, the, all these um, systems, like for example, SBA helped me a lot in terms of when I was buying. Um, you know, if you have the financial statement and you could have wealth in terms of like a life insurance or something to that nature, knock yourself out and get it done. These are instruments that don't bother you. It works automatically and so on. And at the end of the day, don't be like me <laughs> because I had all these years where I was just, it was more important to me to the, the I call it the monster of a brewer. You know, I created that monster. So don't be that. Mm -hmm. Be humble and understand what's important, which is obviously your family and your kids and so on. And that's what you should fight for. What's the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they have a follow-up question? Is LinkedIn a good way? LinkedIn or email. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's either a brewer at Gmail or AB at John to go, whatever. Okay. But um, We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, so you have that. So that's good. Um, and, uh, I, you know, phone calls are very hard for me. I got a lot of phone calls that's during okay. the day. But other people email, you. I, yeah, you know, that type of a thing. Thanks so much, Abe. Much pleasure. And it's really good seeing you, both of you. Yes. And uh, it's a pleasure. Wow. That was one of our longer episodes, and I think for good reason. He had a lot to share, and we appreciate him coming on. We also appreciate Shlemy Zions, who suggested him to join us on the Kosher Money Podcast. If you have a suggestion, if you have criticism, feedback, you want to sponsor the clothing on this week's episode, <laughs> no problem. Reach out. 914, we're on WhatsApp, 914-222-5513. 
you want to sponsor an episode, you want to tell us what you love about the podcast, a guest you want. We're on YouTube. We're over a thousand subscribers. We're, I think, over a quarter million listens across all the different platforms. Apple Podcasts. If you have an iPhone, if in your hand is an iPhone 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, I don't know where they're up to. Four, they have iPhone 14s now? Not yet. If you do have any of those iPhones, go to the podcast app, search Kosher Money, give us five stars, leave a nice review. Oh, you can on Spotify. You can. Oh, I didn't know that. You see, you teach me things, Yaakov. And we want the audience to teach us what they're seeing out there. Talk to us about your money. We want to know who should we have on next week. Until next time, keep your money kosher. Living L'chaim.